As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. That's the hardest thing about being an entrepreneur, I've found, is just disregarding bad advice because there's so much of it. The advice that we're told in Silicon Valley is very good at making money for VCs, and that's mm. why it's told. Yo, technology, what is it all about? Hello and welcome to Danny in the Valley, your weekly dispatch from behind the scenes and inside the minds of the top people in tech. Thank you for tuning in. We have a fabulous show for you this week. David Barrett is on the program. Now, David is the founder of Expensify, and chances are you have not heard of Expensify. It processes expenses, which sounds super boring. But think about it another way. Expensify is the unicorn that you have never heard of. Barrett's previous company was Red Swoosh, which was co-founded by another guy you may have heard of, Travis Kalanick. And Barrett just has a really interesting story to tell. So Expensify processes something like $20 billion worth of expenses now. And Barrett runs it in a very particular type of way. The company is super spread out. He's actually based in Portland, Oregon, but he was down in San Francisco for the day, which allowed us to sit down. And he just has a different type of management style. Every For a month, every year, he takes the whole company with families to some exotic place where they all just hang out and work in another country which is something I've never heard of. And it leads to all kinds of interesting outcomes, including a couple employees getting dengue fever, which happens if you're hanging out in Vietnam long enough, apparently. But he talks about why he runs the company the way he does, how it all nearly came crashing down, and why he hates venture capitalists. It's a really fun one. It'll give you some stuff to think about. So I'm going to stop talking, and I will turn you over now to David Barrett of Expensify. Enjoy. Expensify is old. Ancient. As old as the is, yeah. <laughs> so when you started, was it 2008 you started this? That's right, yeah. Is it difficult to keep people around given that we are in this place where everybody's a unicorn or aspiring to be and you've been more kind of uh, slow and steady wins the race? Just because you're quiet doesn't mean you're slow and steady. <laughs> uh, I would say I moved to Portland and I said to the company, like, uh, hey, going to Portland, anyone who'd like to come is welcome. And about a third of the company came. And this and, is a few years ago. Yeah. And that's because we have actually shockingly high retention. And if you're hiring a bunch of people out of college and they stick around for like six, eight years, their lives change a lot over that period. Yeah. And if you don't have a company that provides a diversity of kind of lifestyles, you just can't hold on to your people. Realistically, we have trouble holding on to people in San Francisco, not because they're leaving the company, because they just want to leave San Francisco. Literally have a hard time filling this office, and it's becoming a real problem. Because really? people move to San Diego, uh, Denver, uh, New York, Portland, London, Melbourne, like all over the place, because we have offices all over. Yeah. I don't think San Francisco is a place that people want to live anymore. I think it's a place that people want to experience. They want to say they've lived there, yes. and then they want to leave as soon as possible. I think at one point, like when I came to Silicon Valley, like you know, in 2000 or so, there was no place like it. Mm. If you wanted to do technology, you wanted to talk to people that understood technology, this was the only place to do it. That's just not true anymore. There are a ton of great towns out there that have great tech hubs that are also just great places to live. Like this right. is 
just technology and it is nothing else. If you want anything else in your life, you just can't get that here. Because we had a similar experience. We lived here and we moved because we committed the sin in San Francisco of having children. <laughs> yeah, that's what that, that was it. Uh, kicked me out of it as well. And so it was just uh, affordability or lifestyle or everything. I mean, affordability, yes. Um, but it was real simple. I'm like, hey, I want to have a backyard with a tree swing. That's just not possible here. Best case, you could have a backyard with a tree swing and an hour and a half commute. Um, I'm like, I didn't want that. So yeah. now I have a backyard with a tree swing. I'm 15 minutes to the airport, 15 minutes to work, no traffic. I've you know, bought a Tesla because it's so cheap up there. You have plenty of income. Like we pay everyone globally according to San Francisco wages. So you can live right. nice in San Francisco or you can ball out of control anywhere else in the world. Our team in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, they're doing just great. I bet. Can we go back to 2008 when you started this? Always. I was doing some reading before you showed up, and you were quite candid about your pitch. You kind of launched at TechCrunch. Oh, yeah. But can you explain what you were saying and what the actual reality was? Saying it's quite sure. So, interesting. Yeah, that's the uh, kind of loosely held secret of Expensify is that the entire thing is a ruse. I've been a programmer since I was six. Uh, computer graphics and video games were my jam. Lots of engineering, you know, P2P software, computer games. My last startup was acquired by Akamai in 2006. Okay. So I was kind of like vesting out my golden handcuffs here. And I was uh, living in the Tenderloin. And I would see this the same homeless people on the street every day. And I'm like, look, I can't solve homelessness. I can't solve hunger in a global scale. But I have the, it's within my power to ensure that the people I see every day get a yeah. hot meal every day. So I just want to figure out like how to do that. And like, yeah, you could do cash, but that's just like, it's a recurring thing. It doesn't really work that well. You could do gift cards, but then it's like, a $10 gift card for like $7 value meal. It's like a lot of extra change, if you will. So I wanted to make a platform that would let me just sort of provide stable meals to the people I saw on a daily basis. And so I'm like, okay, I'm going to make a debit card that has no money on it. It's loaded in real time only when you use it. It only works once a day up to $10 a day. It only works at restaurants that don't serve alcohol. And I'm like, I'm an engineer. I could build that. And it was, yeah. like, it was just a side project. I could just do whatever. Yeah. I was messing around. And so I went to the banks with this idea, and they're just like, what? No, no, we're not going to do this. It's just too weird. It's too risky. It's like, there's no business model. You just want to yeah. get out of like a dozen cards. It's like, do you know how much work this is going to be for everyone involved? And I'm like, Psh. like, I got nothing better to do. And so they're like, no, just too weird. Too you were, ha- were you hanging out at Akamai just kind of resting, investing? Yeah, of course, because that's how Silicon Valley works. You know, you build a company, it gets acquired, the acquirer immediately destroys it, never does anything with it. And then you just collect a paycheck <laughs> as long as you can stomach it. And that's called success here. <clears throat> and you laugh, but you know it's true. Like, uh, it's such a truism. Like, um, like, oh, your company got acquired. My company got acquired. Like, oh, congratulations. Uh, how long are you going to stick around? I mean, the first question assumes, of course, you're not going to stick around. Yeah. <clears throat> it reminds like, me of the Silicon Valley episode where they're kind of like sitting on the roof and like sun loungers, like drinking big gulps after their company's been acquired. And they're just kind of like, yeah, this is what we do now. And as, as you say, as long as they can hack it. <laughs> yeah. And so anyway, so while I was hacking it, I was doing this thing on the side and the banks were just like, nah, this is too crazy. So I'm like, all right, I need to sound low risk. I need to sound boring. Like what is yeah. the most boring application of these cards I can think of? And I'm like, aha, expense reports. So that's literally how I came up with it. Like no research, no knowledge, no anything yeah. at all. While I was just going through the supply chain to light up this card, because it takes so many vendors to do this kind of thing. Yeah. They're like, so this expense reporting thing, like, tell me about it. I'm like, oh, that's yeah, great. It does, you know, you know how it works. And like, well, I don't know. Tell me, like, uh, do you support this new iPhone thing that just came out? 
And I'm like, oh, yeah. Two, this is 2008. Yeah, so like 2007 right. is when I started this conversations kind of yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. At the time, this is pre-app store. So I'm like, it's impossible for me to make an app. But yes, I definitely have an app for it. Of course. Well, what and is people wouldn't even know the difference. No one even knew this right. thing. Like, I was actually yeah. a sidekick guy. And so like, my background's all been in kind of like smartphones for a long time. Yeah. And so, but regardless, it's like iPhone came out. I didn't even have one. Um, I'm like, yeah, we totally have an iPhone app. It does everything you would think it would do, which is like, well, does it scan receipts? I'm like, it definitely scans receipts. Even though I knew the camera was so bad, it couldn't focus on anything in the, in the forefront, so you couldn't right. read anything on it. It just didn't matter. And so I just went through this again and again to like, do you, do you reimburse through ACH? I'm like, I have no idea what that means, but yes, of course. It's yeah. like, do you export to accounting? I'm like, sure, I do accounting in air quotes, but like QuickBooks and I guess all of the others, whatever those are. I just had to give this pitch so many times to so many different vendors to line this up that in the end, I had sort of invented this fictional expense reporting company that was just based upon a tremendous amount of market research of people who despised expense reports. So you were basically selling a little bit of magic, but it was actually like there was no rabbit in the hat. There was nothing. There, was, there wasn't even the intention of building it. The whole point was to build it because like, they get my technology platform. I had a job. I was already doing something else. Yeah, yeah. But eventually, actually, I lost my job. Market crashed. And so I lost all my savings. And so I'm like, I should probably do something real with this. And so yeah. when I launched at TechCrunch 50, and it was right around the same time. Like, I still kind of like really wasn't committed to the expense reporting concept because it just sounded like the dullest thing in the universe. Yeah. And so I'm like, yeah, it's going to be Expensify, the corporate card for the masses. It's a, a prepaid debit card that you give out your employees. It's loaded in real time. You can specify spend controls and merchant limitations, and every purchase is billed back to your personal credit card, so you get to keep all the miles. Same exact technology they wanted to build for my sort of meal card that I wanted to give the right. homeless, but presented in a way that was kind of palatable. Right. And everyone's like, wow, you know, those, those cards sound amazing, but your expense reports sound incredible. I'm like, oh, what? Really? <laughs> uh, they're like, oh, yeah, if I could do that, that would be great. And I'm like, huh, okay. And then that's when basically everything fell apart in my life. And I'm like, okay, I need a job now. Um, and so maybe I should just do this for real. But that's kind of like the story behind any good idea is like a good idea has to sound bad. If it didn't sound bad, it wouldn't be a good idea. It would just be the thing that everyone does. Right. So you launch this. Do you raise money off this kind of – because it's really interesting now because a lot of um, – I imagine that story isn't that unique because there's a lot of like fake it till you make it kind of ethos yeah. around here. But it does feel like there's been uh, a few chickens coming home to roost with that. <laughs> to fake it until you make it and they, you never make it. And then it becomes, and then it gets, gets exposed. But I don't know. I mean, I have a million thoughts about Silicon Valley. You can't live here for a couple of decades and not end up kind of despising it. But uh, <laughs> I think it's like it's a whole game. Like success, like we celebrate like the serial entrepreneur. Yeah. Which I've never quite understood because it's like... Uh, I made this company, I hired a bunch of people who I really care about, I built this thing that I care about all my customers and my product and all this stuff, and then I just walked away from it entirely, and I did that multiple times. If you just say, like, I'm a serial parent, and like, I just started a family, and I did all this stuff, and then I left, and I did it all over again, you'd be like, you're a monster. Right. Um, but here, we're like, huge success, great. Every time I hear that, I just think, you couldn't create a single company that you wanted to stay at, and you right. tried that many times? How awful an entrepreneur are you? I just kind of want to do it once. I think the, the challenge of making a company that's awesome is it's hard. And it's, yeah. it's, it's easy to make a shitty company. You can actually make a ton of money doing it because everything in Silicon Valley is sort of built around the idea of pumping and dumping startups. Everyone recognizes that the founders make money, the investors make money, the employees get screwed, customers get nothing. There are exceptions to that, and the exceptions are the products that we know and love. Mm -hmm. 
but that's like a, such a tiny fraction of the yeah. actual amount of money flowing through this entire valley. Like the vast majority of people are working on something which everyone knows is the dumbest thing in the world no one will ever use, but we all suspend disbelief because there's just so much money being made in the process. Yeah. Emperor has no clothes. Yes. Like we started off talking about hiring. I wanted to build a company that got better with time, like a fine wine. Usually there's like this startup entropy. Everyone knows the story. It's, it's on Silicon Valley. It starts off. It's like you got a couple you know, people who are awesome. They like work really hard in a garage and things are super fun. And then like you grow, you get a couple customers and things get a bit more real. It gets a little harder. Then you uh, raise money. They force you to hire someone, this older guy that they know. It's always yeah. an older white guy. That person basically, you know, tells you how it goes. It's like, you're really cute, what you've done so far, but like, let me take it to the next mile. That person hires their friends that aren't really kind of your sort yeah. of people anymore. Paychecks get out of control. You start losing a ton of money. You have to start raising a ton more money. You give it more and more control. Now you're actually screwed because there's no possible path to profitability. You've made such commitments you can't possibly deliver upon. All your best people gradually leave. You're stuck with the shell of something that you're just like so in the money on. You have to basically make it work. You will say whatever possible to anybody possible yeah. to get out of it. Once you're done, you're stuck with basically, you know, hey, I got acquired for a billion dollars. 90% of which is earnouts on projections, which no one thinks we're actually going to make. Yeah. And also the liquidation preference wiped out the other half. So really no one made any money except I stuck around for a couple of years because they basically bribed me as part of the acquisition to do this sort of thing. Yeah. All my employees got fucked. No one talks to me anymore. I start all over. And that's just how it goes. And I would say, I just didn't want to do that. I wanted to make a company that, I don't know, the hiring standards get better over time. Yeah. And like, it seems really obvious, but in order to do that, you have to do things like... Uh, we never hire anyone into a position of authority. Everyone always starts at the absolute bottom. We've never hired a single executive, for example. There right, are, right, There are right. no adults in the room. The really? entire thing is all just run by us. Because if you hire Isn't someone, that quite difficult as you grow? No, it's so much easier because it's just not that hard. It, very little about what we do is somehow insanely difficult. Right. It's only difficult because we buy into all the sort of overly complicated garbage that people try to sell us. And so, no, because if you hire someone into a position of authority... To everyone in your company, you cannot possibly advance here because we value skills that you cannot get here. Right. Once you start hiring people in authority, you basically give the middle finger to all your best people because you're forcing them to leave. And so we say, no, no, no. There is no right. limit to how high you can get. It's kind of like I'm reminded of this one um, article I read a while ago about uh, like what could BlackBerry have done to protect against the iPhone. And the conclusion of the article was basically nothing. Because it's not like the iPhone was just different in one way. It was different in every possible way. Technology, marketing, target audience, like platform, all this sort of stuff. Yeah. Likewise, when it comes to sort of teams, you can't just like adopt one thing and be like, oh, yeah, I'm just like a normal company, except we, like, we don't have any titles internally, uh, yeah. which makes everything really complicated. There's no and so it's cascading consequences throughout the rest of the company. If you want to make a really amazing team, you have to be willing to throw out not just like pieces of the playbook, but the whole playbook. Like, we have no commission sales structure. And so, we have, um, as such, we don't do any contracts. Uh, we do, like, maybe 10% of our revenue comes from contracts. And 90% of revenue comes as a credit card month to month. And that means that we have an insanely diverse customer base. Right. Um, we don't do any product development for specific customers, for example. And it just changes everything about your company. And how many people are you now? We're 130, which sounds crazy because, like, we're the fastest growing expense reporting company in the world, we've got more customers than the sum of the rest of the industry combined. So can you talk about the industry? Because I will speak as a longtime employee 
and someone who's working outside the mothership and having to do <laughs> expense reports and they are the worst thing about my job. <laughs> That's not true, but they're terrible. I hate them. I do everything I can to avoid them. But I don't understand what this industry is, what you're aiming at, basically. Well, okay, so that's a good question. You started off talking about going you know, slow and steady sort of yeah. thing. I think that uh, there's an advantage to being in an industry that no one quite understands. Yeah. Uh, because no one notices what you're doing. Our industry would classically be defined as you know, expense management. And expense management has historically been defined as, let's say, Fortune 500 companies. Basically, anything that can be acquired with an enterprise sales model, which basically means companies over 1,000 employees. 100% of our competition is focused on companies over 1,000 employees. They won't say that, but their business model demands it. Right, because we, we, we use um, SAP. Yeah, of course. Concur or whatever. Yeah, yeah, called. all those guys. And so yeah. like SAP, Concur, like they're the only real companies. Then there's, yeah. like, there's Concur, there's us, and then there's basically like the next seven companies combined have all, or have all been combined into one called Embers. We call it Frankenspence. But basically, it's just like they just, they just hoover up all the failed companies there. And they're all, they all have the exact same business model. And they all go after this tiny fraction of the enterprise market. And so it's insanely competitive there because everyone has the same sales structure, same acquisition model, same costs. Everyone's just raced to bottom for margins. No yeah. one makes any money. And no one scales. We don't give a shit about that market. Like Our market is everything else, the other 90% of the industry that no one cares about. Right. Um, because we have a, a word-of-mouth business model that's focused on employees. We don't do any outbound calling. Everything's 100% inbound. And we do this because it's uh, individual employees download the Expensify app, they uh, just start using it. And the consequence of using the app is it's like, we don't say, hey, refer this to your boss. Instead, we just say, uh, hey, that receipt you just scanned, where would you like me to send it? And that's the same thing. It becomes basically a highly targeted marketing message straight to the decision maker coming from an, en an endorsement from the employee. It's a, our bottom-up acquisition model is very similar to like more, things like Dropbox or even yeah. Slack to a degree, yeah. but applied into an enterprise place. Like we're 130 employees, but like, we're one of the very few profitable unicorns out there. That's why you just never see us raising money because we don't have to. We did a Super Bowl ad. Like we bought a bank. Every year we take the whole company overseas for a month. What? Yeah, we take the whole company overseas for a month every year. Explain that, please. So like we did, last year we went to uh, Vietnam. It took the whole company from all our offices. 130 like, hey, people. 130, well, 130 people plus families. And so, uh, yeah, I know it sounds crazy, right? What, like, for, for shits and giggles? Or well, we just we work. Yeah, like the internet goes everywhere. We work on the internet. Why can't we? So, yeah, we just show up and like, hey, this particular cafe in uh, Hanoi, it's like show up here at 10 a.m. See you there. People figure out Airbnbs and hostels and things like that. And then we'd like, we have an itinerary. And it's gotten more and more supported over time. But yeah. I'd say by and large, the way that we make it work is we say like, hey, we're an expense reporting company. This is what we reimburse. If you can afford to live in San Francisco, you can definitely live in Hanoi. And so everyone just finds a cafe, work out of the cafe, do it every day. Whole company just keeps on running. How long have you been doing that? From the start. I did my last startup and this one. Why? There are a million reasons. I would say the most obvious is it's like the sickest perk you can possibly imagine because most people like, can't take a month and travel around the world. No. Everyone in my company is basically like, oh, yeah, I've, I've traveled all over the world, and they're, they're, they're very hardened travels. But I would say dig a little bit deeper than that. I think the structure, what we call this, are kind of these, uh, these offshores are what we do. And it's like a, a good offshore is we go places that people wouldn't think to normally go, like smaller towns and things like this. So we show people experiences that they – that are much worse than they would ever seek out for themselves. Like, it's hot, it's dirty, they're in the middle of a jungle, there's no power, there's mosquitoes. Right. Uh, like, people get dengue fever, like, you know, things happen, like, things go wrong. But it's also awesome. 
and you realize even when you're in these places that you would have never thought to actually actually seek out when you're there you're like oh the food is so great that experience is amazing that sunset remember that is incredible like uh, that club that was so crazy like these are the experiences that you can never just mint you have to sort of like seek them out and so on one hand is we just go really far off the beaten path and show them there are amazing things to be discovered out there and on the other hand we say we're going to create experiences so much better than you could possibly think you deserve like um we're in Italy a couple years back we rented out this uh hotel called a the Borgio Estancia. Like, no one's ever heard of it. Uh, Madonna goes there a week every year. It's where uh, Justin Timberlake got married. It's basically like, you haven't heard of it because it's too exclusive kind of thing. So we got the whole thing for like a week. Then we rented a convoy of 60 vintage Italian sports cars. I'm like, hey, everyone pick one. What? uh, 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 Everyone grabs one. We go in a police-escorted convoy to this castle where we rented out the entire thing and have this lavish feast. That's just like one night. And like we, and it sounds, again, you just remind yourself, it's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. And this is this weird expense reporting company that yeah. is super dark and no one ever hears about. It's like, we're just too busy. We're just too busy doing things. Everyone else is so focused on Silicon Valley and raising money and like all this stuff. It's like, dude, this shit does not matter at all. None of this makes you successful or happy. We're just too busy like doing all the stuff that's like, makes an insanely profitable, successful company at scale that has holds on to employees basically forever because where could they possibly go that does anything like yeah. this? We had somebody on the podcast recently. He's written a book called Shorter, and it's about how we all work too much. He profile, it goes around the world and profiles all these companies that work four-day weeks. I don't know if you have a view on that. I think that's terrible. Um, you think it's terrible? I think it's terrible. And I think, and here's why. Let's say like you found someone like an artist, uh, like Picasso, yeah. And they love their work. They love their work. It's like basically defines them. Mm-hmm. It provides them satisfaction and sort of, you know, self-actualization. Yep. I mean, like, Picasso, you should work less. Like, I know you love it, but you should do things you love less because working is wrong. And I think actually that whole framing that, like, work is something to be minimized is just an atrocity because that... But for, for most people, they, I think that is what it is. No, no, but that, that's the wrong message. It's like basically, hey, you hate your job. What you should do is you should work less. The better thing is get a better fucking job. Figure out what you want in life and start doing it. And once you're doing things that you believe in, why would you want to do less than that? The people in my company, when we interview, like we have this very rigorous process. We hire very few people that we're yeah. spending a ton of time on it. And if you get through the whole gauntlet, then you get to me at the very end. I interview every candidate. The only question I ask is, what do you want to do with the rest of your life, and how can Expensify help? And I reject a ton of candidates. They're past, like, fantastic engineers, super cool people, and all sorts of stuff. I'm just like, you don't know what you want in your life. And if you don't know what in your life, I can't give it to you. And that means you're just drifting. That means you're just looking for distractions. And that means inevitably things are going to go wrong. I want people that want to accomplish things in their lives because it's like, oh, cool, I know what you want to do. Great, we can do that together because I know other people want to do the same thing. Right. And now everyone's not working for me. They're working for their own life's ambitions. And then why would you want to slow someone down for that? The advice that we give is like, work as much as you possibly can without burning out and make sure that what you do, you love. Then you live an incredibly satisfying and successful life. But trying to avoid work is to buy into this idea that work can never be satisfying. I just think that that's the reality for a lot for most people. I, I think it's the reality, but it doesn't need to be. It's a reality because we tell them that's the reality and because we have so few counterexamples. It's like, yeah, yeah well, TV. for example, I've had 100 plus people on this podcast. You're the first person I've met who takes their company for a month every year to some exotic place to work. 
and I get mean, potentially and it's get not that hard. fever. It's actually yeah. not that expensive because it's cheaper. Like uh, the, for the first reason we did it, actually, this is like my last company. We were between offices. We had one in San Mateo, shut it down, moved to San Francisco, and we had a month that we just didn't know what to do with. Yeah. And someone made a joke. It's like, oh, we should go work in Thailand. And we're like, actually, we should go work in Thailand. And so people like Airbnb out their apartments and things like this, and it's, it's cheaper. Like, again, when you kind of s- step back and, like, look at San Francisco and Silicon Valley from, like, a functional requirements perspective, it meets so few of them. I mm. think, like, when I talk to entrepreneurs, like, oh, should I move to San Francisco and start a company? I'm like, no, you should start a company wherever you are because wherever you are, you actually have some sort of network. Move to San Francisco where you don't know anyone, and then you think that somehow you're going to find people, despite being the most job-rich place in the world, want to work at your shitty startup? You're competing against Facebook and Google. Yeah. So you know, stay in your hometown as long as you possibly can, stretch your finances, and then come to Silicon Valley to raise money. Don't live here. That's for suckers game. Instead, just pretend like you live here because for some reason, VCs think it's super important. Say, like, of course, I'm in San Francisco because it's the center of the universe and all that. Raise your money. Go back home. Have you heard the term, this term, the mullet? No. Which is uh, someone described it to me, this phenomenon that you're talking about. Okay. But basically, like, you have your startup and maybe, like, the founder or somebody, like, a couple executives live here or just come in and out. Yeah. So it's like professional upfront party in the back. Yeah, the yeah, rest okay. Of the company is wherever else it is that is, you know, a third of the cost. Yeah, I think that's the way to do it. I'm, I'm with you on that. It only sounds crazy because people don't do it. Yeah. But think about, like, what would it take to do these things? It's kind of straightforward. And I think that's the, that's the hardest thing about being an entrepreneur, I've found, is just disregarding bad advice because there's so much of it. The advice that we're told in Silicon Valley is very good at making money for VCs, and that's mm. why it's told, because most of the VCs are people who made money by taking that advice. So do you think they're, it's a myth, this idea that VCs and founders and the companies that they fund, their interests are aligned? Uh, no, I think that, I mean, like, the, the entire VC community as an asset class has underperformed the market, I think, every single year except 1999. Like, the entire profession is a failure. Like, there is that are, true? Fact check it. I'll, but, ch- I'll fact um, check that. But I would say, the, the, as in general, the entire profession is a, uh, is a failure. There are unique examples of that that will, for a period, just kind of like if you, you know, have, when they sell you a mutual fund, they're like, yes, this mutual fund's out before yeah, yeah, the yeah. market. They're like, well, you did 7,000 random ones, and that's the one that just happened to work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, yes, there are a bunch of them that happen to work for a while. Very few that work for a long term. Plus, everything's so hidden and secret and so forth. It's like, you know, who knows? And I think that uh, they've got a formula down, and that formula involves basically getting founders, raise a shitload of money. Like, imagine you were trying to, like, you know, get advice from a hot dog salesman. You're like, mm-hmm. hey, man, uh, I got this problem, and I'd love your advice. They're like, hmm, you know what? I thought about it. I don't say this to most people. For, mo- for, for you, I think you should buy more hot dogs. It's because what they sell. You're like, every single piece of advice you get from VC involves <laughs> you should raise money, probably yeah. for me, because I'm special, even though their money spends just as well as anyone else's. Right. And so now I think that um, I love this idea that VCs make money by building successful companies. Just the math on that is so obviously wrong. So like you're a brand new VC. Yep. You just made your first investment. Like, that's cool. How long before that company exits? Four years? It used to be four years, but yeah. now it's probably more like seven. So you're saying they don't take a paycheck for seven years? Well, no, obviously not. It's like, okay, they're clearly not getting compensated based upon the success of their companies because they couldn't, the economics just don't work out. Yeah. By the time they get their first carry check four to seven years later, they're already four to seven years in their career. 
whatever was paying them before is so much bigger than their tiny-ass little start carry check they finally get. At basically no point in the VC's life do they give a shit about the success of their companies because there's, the math does not allow it. Now, don't get me wrong. They're gamblers, and so they yeah. love the idea of one of their companies being like a 1,000x return. Sure, they love that. Yeah. But like, you know, actually like a, a meaningful, steady supply of return, that actually doesn't economically impact them at all. So that's why, shockingly, VCs seemingly only care about the thousand X returns and they will grind to death anyone else that's not that because it's just in their basic economic interest. VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to monday.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. You've raised venture capital. Yeah, I have. Yeah. Have you shared these views with your investors? They know them as well as anyone. <laughs> uh, and I think, like I said, it's been a real challenge. Don't get me wrong. Now, we've been very selective in our investors because we've known this. Well, because you, you haven't raised, for a company that's 12 years old now, yeah. you haven't raised that much, right? Yeah, I think we raised like 27. That's not very much for a company no. that is 12 years old. No, what we do now is we're actually buying, like we just do leveraged buybacks of our investors. Like, which, like when people forget what you can do with profit, like with profit, you can take out real debt. Yeah. Uh, because you can pay, and like real debt's great because it's non-dilutive. And so right. we take out big loans, and then we just create liquidity internally. And then just pay off your investors and take more of your equity back. So like one thing we do is uh, we actually have our own sort of internal DCF, so discounted cash flow model. Yeah. So basically you figure out what is the future, what's every dollar this company is going to make over the course of its lifetime yeah. based upon a forecast, and then you discount that to the present rate, and that creates the value of the company. So we use that, and then we actually just set our own market internally and then buy people's, buy people's shares, the joys of being profitable. Right. And all this stuff just sounds crazy, but it's only crazy because no one actually makes profitable businesses anymore. Even like the advice you get from VCs, is all like, yeah, you have to basically raise and spend a ton of money to build your company. It's like, no company anyone cares about did it that way. That's not how Google did it. That's not how any that, like Facebook did it. It's like, did you j- join Facebook because, you know what, I'm doing an analysis on social networks. I want to like do a, a full market <laughs> research and figure out the one that meets my needs. It's yeah. like, no, man. It's like someone just invited you and that was it. Same yeah. thing for a search engine, same thing for your operating system, for your phone. Basically, everything you care about in your life was not built in that way. But yet, somehow the VCs tell you as if that's the only way forward. And but mm. because that's the way that makes them the most money. It's funny. I'm just doing a piece this week on SoftBank, 
and the Vision Fund. And yeah, so actually, the guy's kind of crazy, but like, I get a mad respect. He's basically like, look, at some point, the robots are going to take over. Uh, and so <laughs> it doesn't really matter what you own so long as you own what the robots want. That's actually the most compelling VC thesis I've heard. <laughs> it, it, it's amazing, though, that this amount of, they've spent $80 billion in two years. It's incredible. Yeah. And it's, it's crazy. all hitting the fan. Yeah, um, well, that happens. Yeah. So back to like the kind of more of the nuts and bolts of the company. So you, you've got 130 people. You're making money. How long have you been profitable? Uh, a couple of years. I would say like, probably the Super Bowl was our big kind of coming out party for that. This year? We did a Super Bowl ad last year. Oh, okay. So there's a few different things. There's first stage one is the company's losing money. And like you see your runway decreasing. Stage two is that your runway, uh, that you're still losing money, but your runway is increasing because you're, you're reducing your expenses faster than your revenues. Right. Um, and so it's like, it's kind of weird. It's not, you're not profitable yet, but your runway is increasing. Uh, stage three is that you're actually like barely profitable. And then stage four is kind of like you're wildly profitable. What stage say, are you guys in? Stage four. Stage three sucks, though, because like, uh, it's, it's fun being unprofitable because it feels like you're scuba diving. It's like I can swim up, swim down. I can do anything. I'm the master of my destiny. So long as you just ignore the fact that you're depending upon someone to give you the next tank. Basically, by having like your chin barely above water. And you're, right. like, you're like, I could stay here forever. It's like, I could, but it's miserable sort of thing. So you want to kind of get through stage three as fast as possible. And stage four is where things get really fun. All the, all the stages except for stage three are super fun. Our Super Bowl was kind of like our celebration of like, great, we did it, guys. Like, we worked very hard. We were like, we're heads down and very focused for a decade on a business model which no one believes in. Everyone thought it was the dumbest thing in the world. So how do you make money? It's very basic. We charge nine bucks per active user per month. That's, That's it. it? That's it. When I was like back in 2009, talking to the first VCs, just because like everything's going great, and I'm like, I should raise money because that's dumb. Yeah. They're like, how are you going to make money? And I'm like, I'm just going to charge subscriptions. And they're like, that's crazy. Like everyone knows it's all about freemium. Like you just, what you, the way you make money is that you lose money at scale. And I'm like, <laughs> I, I don't know the math on that. It doesn't make sense. Like I'm just going to, I think people are just going to pay for this. And so no, we just charge people for what the product we sell. It's wild, I know. That's revolutionary. Yeah, I know. I just, some, someone's going to catch on to it at some point. Yeah. And so how does it work? So if I'm, say, say we get rid of SAP Concur, mm-hmm. which is the system now is I spent 50 bucks on a BART ticket this morning for the next whatever week and a half. I filled up my car because I'm driving down to Silicon Valley to do interviews. I invite somebody out to lunch. I get all these things together. I have to take pictures of them. I have to turn them into PDFs. I have to upload them. I have to put in all the dates and what? all the, it's the PDFs and chunks. Okay, whatever. Yes, no. yes. Okay. So I have to do all of this stuff, and then it's this very time-consuming, very kind of crazy-making process because if you don't fill in the right box for the right date, or there's any discrepancy, then it gets rejected. You have to do the whole thing again, etc. What do you guys do? So the experience of using Expensify is as an end user. So like when you uh, bought your bar ticket, for example, yep. and like the receipt came out. Yeah. Well, so first off, do you use a personal card or company card? Personal. Okay. So when the receipt came out, what you do is you take your phone out of your pocket, you take a picture of the receipt, you put your phone back in the pocket. Okay. And then that would be it. Because like we can figure out all the details. Uh, like, and because we were very early on to um, focus on the, 
the end user experience. Again, we've said so. I open my Expensify app, take yeah, a picture. Correct, and then that, that will basically then we'll we'll read all the information off of it. We will detect basically upon the, the receipt type that it's a BART ticket. We'll figure out its transportation. We'll look at the categories for transportation. We'll figure out that it's under the limits. So you probably don't need to have any sort of like attendee tracking or anything like that sort of stuff. That would be sort of added to a report. Probably depending upon your company's policy, we might split the reimbursables from the non-reimbursables. Submit them on a particular basis to your boss. We'd point like DocuSign basically. We've looked through all these expenses. These are the two you should look at, but for this yeah. expense, you probably wouldn't need to. Yeah. Uh, it would just be submitted automatically. It'd be exported to, uh, let's say, if it's you know if it's SAP, whatever, it would export to SAP, uh, and then you're, there'd be cash in your bank account tomorrow. That's how we do it. But actually, we've gotten made it just better because just a couple of weeks ago, we launched our Expensify card. Because we're like, how can you make it better than just taking a picture yeah. of receipts? Like, well, what if you didn't have to take a picture of receipts? Just use the and card. And so now we would do all of that, except you would just use our card, and then we'd figure out based upon the purchase that it was a, uh, a BART purchase, and then we wouldn't need the receipt. Right, right, and right. So, so yeah, so th- like now, like. But that card would have built into it some kind of limitations around what you can and can't use that for. Yeah, sure, but uh, the way our limitations work are because our card is built into the expense policy. Uh, it evaluates basically everything about that purchase in a millisecond to decide if it's going to authorize it. Uh, and so basically, if your card is in expense policy, it always works. Um, right, 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 right. Uh, and then finance team can specify how far out of policy are we going to let this card get. Because, like, let's say you made a, you know, a really large part purchase. That's kind of a weird example. Yeah. Whatever. Something that just looked a little strange. 200 bucks on a three-hour lunch. Something like this. Then yeah. be like, look, that's not necessarily bad. We're not going to, like reject that, like deny that yeah. transaction at the point of sale. Um, but we are going to ask for an explanation about it. And if you do it enough, then we're going to turn your card off kind of thing. And that's a feature that like, we're the only card in the world that can do that because right. we're the only card in the world that's integrated with expense management that can do that because our business model depends upon individual employees loving the product because they're the ones who pull us into the organization. We're the only company that has a business reason to care about the end user experience. Like Concur would say, oh yeah, you know, we're super all about the perfect trip or whatever it is. Like we were the very first expense reporting mobile app. We were the first to offer receipt scanning. We're still the only ones to offer receipt scanning to such a degree of accuracy that we can do this kind of fire and forget model. Everyone else will basically ask you to I like review the result before yeah. you submit it because yeah, yeah. they don't trust their own technology. Yeah. We do. Like our technology is as good as you, probably better in many cases. And so I think that uh, we've just, with a singular focus of the entire company is about on this radical business model and building technology to support it and building a team to support it as well. That all sounds like kind of magic just relative to the current experience, but it took 10 years, 12 years. Yeah. I mean, I would say it took 12 years Technology is rarely the hardest thing in any yeah. company. I would say the hardest thing is scaling out uh, the human side of things and uh, getting support down. So, for example, most companies, when they sort of cross some sort of scale threshold, then they're like, then we hired 500 people. Um, yeah. It's kind of like you see it again and again. And instead, we're like, then we developed an AI that could support customers. That was our approach. And that took some time, to be honest. Yeah. And so now when you use Expensify, it's built in this feature called Concierge, which is basically... Every time you write in customer support, uh, we look at your question, we analyze it against every question anyone's ever asked, and then we see basically what's most similar to that. Then we look at the most common responses to questions like that, and then that will generate basically a list of uh, potential answers. If it's confident enough, it just sends the answer right away. If it's not confident, it goes to a group of what we call first responders, basically people who will look at the input and figure out if one of the recommended answers is the right one. And if not, then it escalates to a different group that basically will do more research and figure out the right answer. And all this happens in minutes. Um, And so like, 
to my knowledge, no one in the world has anything like this. I think we're the only ones to have this level of sort of AI automation around their customer support tool. And we're an expense reporting company. A lot of companies would be like, no, 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 no. The market thinks that we're an expense reporting company, and so we won't allow ourselves to solve problems outside of that. Right. And we're like, no, 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 no. We're just whatever we want to be. I just want to be a crazy profitable company that has an amazing team going out and like changing the world. Um, so if you're buying, if you're using your profits to buy out some of your investors, and obviously you're making money, so there's no great urgency to go public, do you plan to go public? Or do you want to? I would say uh, we don't need to. I'm not opposed to it, though. Right now, there's just no reason to. Why? I mean, I know you get the currency of the shares. You can use it to buy other companies, raise money, et cetera. But it also just comes, especially if you're really profitable, it comes with all this other BS that goes along with being a public company. Sure. And the quarterly reporting cycle and all of that stuff. We're already audited up, audited up the wazoo anyway. Yeah. Because, like, we my transmission licensing and banks and all this sort of stuff. So it's like, for us, I mean, it would be an incremental hurdle, but, like, we're already super tight in this sort of stuff. Right. So it's not that big of a deal. I would say the bigger question is, like, what do we get out of it? And I think that's a fair question. Like, we already provide liquidity to employees. Now, I... But we're not so profitable we can like meet everyone's liquidity targets at all times. Yeah, yeah. And so I think having some sort of continuous liquidity program like of the public markets would be nice. Um, I think that likewise, we couldn't like just buy out all of our investors all at once. And so, and not that they would like that right now, but like let's say in the future they actually wanted like I'm at the end of my funding cycle or something's changed and I actually need to liquidate like yeah. you know five hundred million dollars all of a sudden. Like um, we couldn't do that ourselves, but the public market could. Right. Uh, and so, again, I would say there's a world in which we go public if our requirements dictate it, but like, or we just stay private forever. Like, that's cool too. Right. You're talking about hiring people and how meticulous the process is. And it just made me think of I was studying Amazon's financial reports mm-hmm. because it's part of my job. Yeah. <laughs> but um, <laughs> the best and it wasn't, yeah, it wasn't for fun. But they're hiring 12,000 people a month. Yeah, it's wild. I mean, now granted, that includes huge numbers of like factories. Warehouse. Like it's yeah. mostly warehouse people. Yeah. But I was just thinking like as you scale up, like you say you still interview every person at the end. Mm-hmm. You know, you can't do that forever. Obviously, like Jeff Bezos isn't interviewing 12,000 people every month. Okay, um, let, me, let me challenge that for a second. Okay. Like, so he's like, oh, you can't do that forever because blah, this other yeah. person didn't. Yeah. Uh, it's like, okay, well, maybe you don't need a business model that needs 12,000 people a month. <laughs> I mean, like, you can control what company you build. True. Uh, and just place constraints upon it. And so I would say, like, look, hire, people for some reason view hiring like it's a sign of success. I yes. think people are a solution to a problem. If you need a ton of them, that just means you have huge problems. Furthermore, people are the worst solution to a problem because they are the slowest to hire, the most expensive, the management thing of this. Like, I would rather, one, not have a problem, or two, solve the problem with technology. And so we only solve with hiring if we can't solve it a better way. And most of the time, we can just solve it a better way. Like when we hire now, it's like we're hiring for um, to flesh out time zone coverage as we sort of expand internationally, yeah. for example. Not because we need it for capacity, but because we need it for like to match capacity with our time zones is one thing. We basically have an unlimited appetite for engineers. Engineers, when you're surrounded by like infinite opportunity, they dictate the speed you can capture opportunity. But we're also like, we only have like 30 engineers. Uh, like maybe 40. It's about hiring the right people. I think it's so easy. Like e- hiring is easy if you don't care who you hire. Uh, yeah. But if like you've, if if you care a lot about it, those people are just super hard to find. And because like we know we've looked. And just going back to where we started. So you started out be like I want to help homeless people. Yeah. Are you doing that now? Yeah. Well, actually, I'd say with our with the Expensify card that we just launched. Did that 
that initial kernel of an idea when mm-hmm. you're walking through the tenderloin and seeing the misery on the sidewalks, mm-hmm. which is happening more yes, yeah. so than Only ever. Only gotten worse, yeah. Yes. Did that remain in like front of mind this whole journey? Sure. I can't claim that that was basically like my driving yeah. motive, like my singular driving motive, yeah. but I would say it was there. I mean, it's hard. I mean, first, I just, I've turned off the news because like who can, yeah. who can even tolerate it anymore? Yeah. This world needs help. And I think the, it's very easy for everyone to say, it's like, look, the problems are just too big. I can't do anything about mm-hmm. it. And also, it's not my job. I pay my taxes for other people to solve this. Like, it doesn't the UN solve that or something? Yeah. And I've never been one to take that attitude. I've always viewed it like, this is my neighborhood. Like, I can do something in my neighborhood. Like, when you mow your lawn, it's like people are like, thank you for doing your part. To be like, no, you're just like taking care of yeah. your own shit. And it's like, no, this is, this is my world. And so I think that uh, everyone in our company is very focused on trying to make the, our world a better place. Not because we have to, not because of corporate responsibility or whatever. That's like it's a guilt framing. Yeah. I would say like, no, it's because like, I, don't, I don't mow my lawn because I feel guilty about it. That's like I mow my lawn because I want it to be better. Um, and I like, yeah, we care about this world because we want it to be better. And we have the power to do something at it. And now, like before, I'd like, I could do something on the scale of my neighborhood. And now I think we can say, no, we process like this. We're going to process like $20 billion in expenses this year. $20 billion. Uh, yeah. If we can carve off a tiny slice of that towards like world-changing endeavors and engage people to do more than just their expenses, but actually in the process, try to actually save the world, like that sounds amazing. So like what excites me about the company is not like someday we'll process a hundred billion expenses. Yeah. It's like, I don't give a shit about the expenses. I, I care about the people that are doing those expenses and what we can do with those people. The Expensify car that we just launched has this feature called Karma Points, which basically is we're like, hey, we could try to, like, and I could go on forever about like how exploitative the whole rewards points system is. The way to think about it is rewards points are like casinos. You see like billboards of like, you know, ordinary people with fistfuls of money basically yeah. in exotic places. The math does not support that. In fact, the math is much more like a casino. In fact, it's like the vast majority of people who have rewards cards pay more in extra fees and interest than the rewards they earn. And a huge fraction... That's a, that's a fact. That's a fact. And a huge fraction of, re- of rewards go unredeemed. Well, okay. it's funny because I have a British Airways card. And they're like, I get these emails every once in a while, like, use your avios to book your next trip. You're like, cool. And then you go in there and you're like, I want to go to whatever, London. And I'm like, London for work. And they're like, yeah, so those 83,000 points will get you one quarter of one leg out there. Absolutely. I mean, is it any surprise? It's kind of like... Why do the VCs promote raising money? Because it makes them money. Yeah. Why do the banks promote rewards? Because it makes them money. It's like, why do the casinos promote slot machines? Because it makes you money. Well, it's so funny. So like the points thing. Why not just tell you how much money you are accumulating? Because it's a shockingly rather, low number. Rather than points, which is like, I've got 75,000 points. Huzzah. And then you go in there, you're like, I, but the translation. Well, yeah, because they have to juice it up that way. Um, just like they make the slot machines seem like all this stuff is right. happening. So it's pur- purposeful obfuscation. Oh, yeah, exactly. And that's, that's why now whenever I see any kind of ad for a credit card, I view it like an ad for a casino. And I think that's actually the right way to view it. It's using all of the same psychological tricks and sort of mm. like statistical fallacies and sort of confusion elements that you would use to promote a casino. And we learned all this because we were like, oh, we're going to launch a corporate card. Yeah. Let's add rewards. First off, no corporate cards have any employee rewards. Like, all corporate cards basically reward the company. But we're an employee-focused uh. business. And so we're the only corporate card in the world that offers rewards to the employee. 
And the second one, like, okay, well, let's do rewards like everyone else. And we're like, oh, God, this is so shady, the entire thing. When you actually do the math and what it adds up to, it's so small because it's like the interchange is like a couple percent of the purchase, and then you take a fraction of the interchange for the rewards. So we're talking like fractions of pennies. So our approach is, what if we just combine all of this across all of our users and then give this to people who actually need it more, uh, who actually could benefit from those combined fractions of pennies? And so our Karma Points program is just kind of a tongue-in-cheek way of saying, reward points are stupid. Instead, let's do something real. Um, Let's combine all this and do something meaningful uh, for the world. So using the card... When you book a flight with the Expensify card, uh, we donate to a carbon offset fund. Uh, when you book, right, when sure. you purchase a meal, uh, we donate to our homeless, a homeless fund or sorry, our hunger fund and th- things like this. And then so um, we incorporated a um, 503c nonprofit or actually formal charity called Expensify.org, which is creative. So we we're running these basically these funds ourselves. And the funds uh, basically directly reimburse people for taking charitable acts. For an example, um, one of our funds is uh, a transitional youth because that's a yep. – and this actually comes back to the research we are doing for homelessness in San Francisco. There's a huge correlation between time spent in foster care and time on the street. Yeah. Not to say foster, foster care is bad. Yeah, to yeah. say that foster care is, serves a very vulnerable population. But there's very little homelessness under 18 and a huge upstep over 18. It's basically when you leave foster care yeah. and become an adult, huge risk profile. Our approach is we go to every foster care parent. We're like, hey, any foster care parent, have lunch with one of your foster kids after they age out of the system, and we will pick up the tab. It right. doesn't require working with you know, a bunch of like cutting checks to other charities, whatever it is, where it's like, we scan receipts. We know what lunch receipts are. Like we, we're in a unique right, position to right, do this right, kind right, of thing. Right, 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 right. And so all of our funds are based around direct action on the, on, of volunteers doing things uh, to help save the world. Why do you care about this stuff? I mean, like... Why, why does anyone care about anything? Like, why do you like chocolate? Like, I don't know. It's just real good. But is it so like, did you grow up in a kind of uh, a household where this was talked about or this kind no. of stuff? Or is it just kind of a natural, your natural setting? Uh, it's probably just my natural setting. I think probably it comes down to, I mean, as a young kid seeing that like this world's fucked up and like everything that people say just seems so wrong. Yeah. And, but they're like, they tell you you're supposed to listen to it. And like just from the earliest age, being like, it kind of seems like, Nearly everyone is wrong about nearly everything for inc- insanely obvious ways. And I'm yeah. like 16. Like, if I can figure this out at 16, like how, is, like, how is the world this wrong? And so at cross purposes. It's like, everything's great. It's fair to freak out about Trump, don't get me wrong. And it's also fair to freak out about global warming. But like, most of the metrics of outside of that are going up. Like, you know, poverty's down, access to like, clean water's up, uh, people who uh, risk of violence is down. Like, the world's getting better and better over time. Yeah. In aggregate. Now, it's volatile, yes, you yes, know. Yes, yes. But like, the world's getting better. Society works. Capitalism works. Everything's great. There are exceptions, but those exceptions are temporary. Even Trump, he's going to be here for four, year, four more years. I know. Certainly, which yes. is tragic and shocking and sad, but not eight more years. And it's like, the world's great. And I think that everyone just seems to be fucking it up by, like, being across odds with stuff that doesn't matter. And so I just want to, like, I don't know, from an early age, like, I want to do my part to try to make the world just a simpler place that just enjoys itself more and is more successful in making it better. Because I feel like the biggest problems in this world are caused by uh, people that feel like everything's broken and so I need to tear it down. It's like, well, if it's broken, why do you got to tear it down, man? Just, like, make it better. Yeah. What was your worst day of work? Oh, I, I would say the worst day of work had to be when um, I went to go raise money. And this is actually probably 
the last time I went to go raise money, actually. And so basically, the model's working great. Everything's up in the right. Business is awesome. Customers are happy. I went out to raise money, and uh, everyone's like, well, you know, my whole portfolio uses you. I use you. This is great. You know, uh, and your numbers are amazing, but your, your numbers are too amazing. Like, this, this doesn't make any sense. You don't spend anything on marketing, yeah. um, and you don't have any salespeople. Like, how, how does that work? And I'm like, it's just great. It's like, I said, this is before consumerization of IT. This is before yeah. basically all of the trends, before Slack, before bottom-up adoption models, before any of this junk before rev- negative revenue churn. And no one's even heard of that before. And I'm like, I don't know. It just seems like every cohort of users that we've ever acquired pays us more now than they ever have. Yeah. And it just kind of seems like they just pay us more over time. They're like, that's impossible. I'm like, I have years of data that show it. And they're like, well, it could change any time. It's like, it might, I guess. But like, what would cause it to change? They're like, well, you can't prove it won't change. I'm like, I guess I can't. But like, it just seems real stable here. And then I went out and I talked to everyone in Silicon Valley, every yeah. VC, every top firm. I had like a um, half dozen partner meetings, like full partner meetings with basically the whole firm. Everyone's like, wow, this is great. This is one of the best pitches I've heard. This company is amazing. I just can't invest because I don't get it. What's your CAC to LTV? And it's like, okay, well, CAC, the cost of customer acquisition, like that implies that we're paying for customers and that we're not. We're like, we're not paying for customers. Yeah. And they're like, that's not true. I'm like, I don't know what to tell you, man. It's just not true. It's like, well, you pay for support. I'm like, yeah, support is not customer acquisition. Doubling my support costs doesn't double my customer count. Yeah. Like, well, let's just ca- estimate your CAC by like uh, dividing your support costs. I'm like, that's not what that number means, man. Like, I, that is a number that's true, but it doesn't mean anything. They're like, okay, well, what's your LTV? I'm like, well, we have negative revenue churns. So, I mean, I guess it's kind of like kind of like infinity or something. Um, and they're like, okay, so your CAC to LTV ratio is like infinity over zero is what you're telling me? I'm like, no, I'm not telling you that. That's what you're telling me because of this stupid framework that is used to evaluate a completely different business model. My business model cares about these other things, which you don't understand because it's very complicated. A phrase less antagonistically than this. Yes. But I just went through this conversation again and again. And basically, I was just like, I just, I do not get your model. There's no way negative revenue churn lasts this long. There's no way that you can keep scaling without spending on customer acquisition. There's no way that you can keep your team this lean. There's just no way any of this works. Yeah. That was like, I don't know, probably like six years ago. And like now we've like orders and orders of magnitude higher than that. And everything fucking works even better now. I just couldn't get anyone to believe in my business model. And that's, I think that was the day when I realized that uh, there is no cavalry coming to rescue this company. Either I need to start looking like everyone else and basically make a shitty company that I'm going to leave. Yeah. Or I need to make this company the way I want to make it, but no one is going to believe me. That's when we went dark because it's like this whole thing, this is just a distraction. Like we've got something amazing here and we're just going to go off and do it and not care about what anything. So did you raise money? Uh, no, that, that run failed. And oh, then, it failed? Uh, yeah, that run failed entirely. And at the time, you know, I was like losing money because it's like um, I bought into a lot of the VC bullshit and like yeah. I was spending money and things like this. And so I'm like, okay, lesson learned. I'm going to cut all of that stupid spend. I'm going to slash salaries 15%. Uh, we're going to stop all hiring. Wow. Um, because our business is great. And like, if yeah. we do all of that, I think in about you know, uh, three months, we're going to like basically get down to shockingly little cash. And then things are going to go up. And so we did it. The whole team rallied behind it. Everything went exactly according to plan. Uh, we bought them out like, you know, incredibly low money in the bank account. But it was fine. How low is low? To the point where, like, you're doing cash flow on, like, a per sort of, like, vendor bill basis. Like, thousands of dollars kind of thing. But every check cashed. Uh, every uh, employee got paid. Paid back all of the uh, the 50% pay cut with interest. Ever since then, we're just like, okay, 
we've got something that no one understands. Yeah. But also, why do we care? Their understanding is not critical for our success. Like, yeah. we kind of realize, like, what was I even doing? Like, what were we going to do with that money when we, just, when we raise it anyway? Yeah. I'm simplifying a lot of this, of course. I think after that, we, uh, we finally found, like, because our, our first investor, uh, Bobby Lent from uh, Ariba, he invested just because he's like, I like you. I like the vision. Uh, I'm retired, yeah. you know, super millionaire. And so, like, cool, let's do this kind of thing. The second round was from Redpoint. And they're like, your numbers are so good. Like, I don't really care if the, if the model doesn't make sense. It was like when we went to go raise at a certain scale that people needed to see a model that worked, right. that's when it failed. Right, right, um, right. And then years later, we actually found investor uh, OpenView in the East Coast that basically like, oh, wow, this whole rev- negative revenue churn thing? Yeah, this is our, our whole thesis, like product-led growth. There are very few examples of this, and, but we understand it and we love it. And so they sought us out and just like beat down our door. Now we have investors that understand it, but it's very hard. Like people just don't get it. But also we just don't care because we don't need the money anyway. Right. Last question. Did you have an employee that actually got dengue fever? Yes, we had two. Uh, one in Vietnam, yeah. They were uh, roommates in the same room. And oh. I th- so it's basically the like... The same mosquito. same mosquito probably got them. Who knows? Oh, bummer. But yeah, I mean, I'd say... It's, it's been great traveling around the world. The team. That's it, like the bone, I think they call it like the bone crunching disease or something. Not it's, good. Yeah. Um, the best part of traveling is traveling with families. So like I have a, a five-year-old daughter, but like in Cambodia five years back. So I took her when she was 10 months old to Cambodia. But, you know, a couple other kids came along as well. And so seeing all these families grow up together has been right. super interesting because these kids basically get together in those random beaches around the world. Yeah, it's super fun. I mean, like, it's been incredibly satisfying. And also nice about getting out of Silicon Valley is, like, employees with families. And families are so much more interesting than just individuals. And so we, when yeah. we bring the whole company together, it's like this, like, epic family reunion kind of thing. Right. And it's like these are the experiences that make life amazing and worth living. But they're not experiences that people even think are possible. And they're not experiences that happen by just following the classic playbook. Where are you guys going this year? Spain. Oh, which part? I actually don't know. We usually keep the itinerary secret. Or maybe we don't. I, I'm not sure if we actually do that anymore. So I know that at one point we're going to the Canary Islands, though. Oh, amazing. I've uh, been to the Canary Islands. I've never been. Yeah. yeah, they're cool. They're cool. Yeah, it should be good. It's harder and harder to find places to kind of like top the events that we've done in the past. <laughs> uh, but we're trying real hard. Yeah. Well, look, that's it's fascinating. Thank you very much for taking the time. I appreciate it. Hey, thanks for having me. And that is all the time we have. I want to thank David for taking the time, especially on his whistle-stop tour through San Francisco. And I hope you enjoyed the conversation. I'll be writing it this weekend in the Sunday Times, so please do check that out at thetimes.co.uk. If you have any comments, questions, concerns, whatever, find me on Twitter at Danny Fortson, online at danny.fortson at sunday-times.co.uk. It's my email address, obviously. And please take a moment, give a rating and review. If you do enjoy the show, it really helps other people find it um, with those. So those ratings uh, do really, really help. That is it. Until next week, have a fabulous weekend. VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. 
It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.